We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. If you've been listening to Transformative Principle for any amount of time, you know that I have a love-hate relationship with EdTech. We have the ability to personalize learning for every single one of our students, and yet so many of our ed tech tools fall short. We need our technology to do more for us. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum, and that it's proven to benefit all student populations, including English language learners and students in special ed programs. As a principal, I've used this in my school. As a parent, I've had my children use it as well. And let me tell you, this is a tool that definitely helps students learn and practice better. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments, and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? Now, you also know that I don't care so much about test scores, but I know that they are legislatively convenient and something that we have to deal with and manage on a day-to-day basis. If you can implement something that is easy and effective, why wouldn't you do it? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com slash B for a demo. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment, 
And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have on the program today Dr. Erin Bailey. She joined Reading as Fundamental in 2021 and currently serves as the Director of Literacy and Content. Her role includes serving as a subject matter expert and developing, curating, and managing content and professional learning for educators and families on literacy. She has been an educator in the U.S. and international classrooms, and her teaching experience spans from pre-K-8, including roles as a classroom teacher, literacy specialist, English, English language learning specialist, and university instructor. She has a robust and interdisciplinary research repertoire, including learning through informal spaces such as public gardens, art museums, and social movements. She takes up art processes such as film photography and sound mixing to expand approaches to qualitative inquiry. Erin, welcome to Transformative Principle. Excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us what your big takeaway is from our conversation today? Well, my big takeaway from today is that families play an important role in motivating children to read and you should listen to find out how to engage families in your schools. Yeah, we actually have some pretty good stuff on that topic. And the takeaway for me is when we talked about the location of where you should have a literacy event and the time. I think that's something that's really easy to get stuck in a rut and do things how we've always done them. And I would encourage people to listen to that section of the show and and really think about that for your next event. Before we get into the interview, would you tell us a little bit about Reading is Fundamental and what your purpose there is? Yes, I would love to. So Reading is Fundamental developed in 1966. So I like to call it the one of the OG literacy nonprofits. We've been around for a while. And at the heart and soul of Reading is Fundamental, we make sure that children have access to books and reading resources and that these resources inspire a joy of reading for children because we know that reading is the building blocks to future success and to being lifelong learners. Excellent. Very good. And so how do you help schools and communities with that? We provide free, high-quality content to engage children, educators, and families. Everything on our website, rift.org, is free. We have educators come back to us all the time saying, I wish I knew this website existed before I was doing my lesson plans. So 
We have a extension of our website called Literacy Central, and that's where we have over 10,000 resources that go specifically with children's literature and children's books, including vocabulary scaffolds, graphic organizers, discussion guides, and we have these available for families too in multiple languages so that families can work with their children at home on their reading. Yeah, very good. There's, We're going to talk about a lot more here in just a moment, so I'm going to get to that interview with Aaron in just a moment. We'll be right there. Well, Aaron, would you start by talking about what some of the biggest concerns are as it relates to children's literacy? Yes. How long do you have? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> but one of my biggest concerns, I have to say, is that there are decades of research on reading and literacy, yet there continues to be this debate around how we teach reading. And I've been following this issue very closely. What I'm most interested in is teacher stories that I'm hearing, where teachers are making connections. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to teach reading that way, or I've been teaching it wrong all these years. The most concerning to me is for people who were certified reading specialist or reading interventionist. And I hear these interviews where they're saying, I wasn't taught how to teach reading. And I'm a teacher of reading teachers. And I can tell you any of my graduate students that I've taught in the literacy specialist program, if they're listening, they would be mortified. I would be mortified if I ever heard one of them say that they left a teacher preparation program not prepared to teach reading. So that's one of my biggest concerns. Okay, let's pause there for a second because this idea that there is science and research behind how to teach reading is an area that I'm very interested in myself because it seems like if there is a science to it, or we know the right answers, why are we not teaching in that way all the time? And furthermore, why aren't we just having computers do it? Because computers aren't going to make mistakes on it. Yeah, that's a great point. From my perspective, coming, you know, from a personal perspective, I don't think teacher or computers can take the role of teachers away. Because Part of what I do and part of what we do at RIF as well is about teaching teachers how to be culturally responsive. I haven't met a computer yet who can learn a student's culture, learn a student's motivation and reach them in that way. Certainly there's probably people who are out there designing those computers or the way things are going now, they're probably designing themselves. But I think what teachers have is that personal touch. And so what I try to do in my practice preparing teachers and what we try to do at Reading is Fundamental is to train teachers in getting to know their students, getting to know their students' families and cultures, and then using those research-based best practices, but using them in a way where they're going to meet their students where they're at. Okay, so let's talk about that idea a little bit. I know we're getting off track from my original question, but I think this is important. So <clears throat> training teachers to get to know their students. And then when you say evidence-based practices, I believe that was where you use, correct me if I'm wrong, but what are those things that they should be doing to teach their students to read? And this is where you can just like rattle off. These are the things we know. And these are some of the things that we think are good, but we aren't like, we totally know. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Okay. 
So generally, we like to think of them, or I think of them at least, as five pillars of reading instruction. So we're starting at the very basic level with phonological awareness, and that's usually taught in preschool up through second grade, and that's about hearing and being able to manipulate the sounds in words. It's the building block for the next one, which is phonics. Phonics, of course, is being able to see the graphemes or the written English letters and knowing what sounds connect with those and then being able to blend it into a word. Typically, the way I've been seeing it presented in the media is that those two components are getting a lot of attention right now. It's mostly because they're finding that a lot of schools have not been using explicit phonics instruction. So a lot of times, unfortunately, when I see people advertising science of reading, they're really only working on the phonics and the phonological awareness. And that's just getting you to be able to decode the words. But there's other layers too. One that I'm probably the most passionate about because I've worked with a lot of multilingual students is vocabulary. It's one thing to be able to read words on a page, but it's a different thing to understand what those words mean. And that's where a robust vocabulary instruction comes in. And since I'm so passionate about that, a lot of our resources at Reading is Fundamental are centered around vocabulary instruction. The next, what I would call pillar, is fluency. So again, one thing to be able to lift those words off the page, but you're going to sound like a robot if you don't know how to read with fluency. And I usually like to define fluency as rate. So how quickly or slowly are you reading? Are you reading it like you're speaking at a normal pace? Accuracy, that's where the phonics comes in. How accurately are you reading the words? And expression. Expression is really going to be the bridge between the words you're reading and the meaning that you're making when you're reading those words. And that's where the fifth pillar comes in, which is comprehension. You've read all these words, you sound beautiful. Are you making meaning? And what are you doing with that meaning as you're making it? And so these are kind of the layers, I'll call them too, of reading instruction that I think are being overlooked right now. Yeah, I appreciate you going through those. And I think it's important for us to be able to define what it is that we're talking about when we say things like the science of reading, because there's so many different things that could mean and so many people have different perspectives of what it does mean and how they implement it. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Now, let's go back to our, our original question that we kind of blew past real quick and some of the concerns with children's reading today. And this is a an interesting topic, especially because in other countries, they because their language is different, they have a different way of managing this whole entire thing. So for example, in Russia, where I used to live, they, <laughs> the Russian language, every letter sounds like what it is. So phonics like really doesn't make a ton of sense because it just is what it is. Phonological awareness also, it's like part of how they learn to speak and spell and understand words that is all it's all connected much more than it seems to be in in english at least in my limited experience so when you say how do i say or how do i spell strastvutia which is hello then they say strastvutia and they say it like you're an idiot even like five-year-old kids will say it 
because you sound like an idiot when you ask, how do I spell something? Because they're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So, so going back to concerns in children's reading, what are the other things that you're seeing that are causing issues besides not teaching it correctly? Yeah. And just to pick up on that also a little bit, I taught in a bilingual English and Chinese classroom in Hong Kong Mm. and you teach, you know, we would be on two sides of the room teaching reading in completely different ways because the language is different. So it's while there's science that shows approaches to reading, there's really no one way to teach reading because you just like you explained it's taught differently based on the language that you're using. So this Mm -hmm. idea that there's a singular way of teaching is just, you know, faulty. But, and then you asked, what are the other concerns that I have? So motivation. We also have research around motivation to read. When we look at the NAEP scores, we see that children are reading for pleasure or joy, the lowest that they've ever been historically. They're just not motivated to want to read. And that's where reading is fundamental really steps in. We like to say backed by research, powered by joy. And I really believe that because our resources that we're offering, while they're research backed or standards aligned, we design them in a way that it's going to get children motivated to read, to want to become lifelong readers and to spark their joy and curiosity about reading. I really like that tagline backed by research powered by joy because like, man, I just personally love reading. Like I, I read every single night before I go to sleep and I cannot wait to get into bed and pull up my Kindle and read whatever it is that I'm reading. Often that is like time that I reserve for fiction, enjoyable reading and, and so that, that idea of backed by research, powered by joy is really great to me. Yeah, I have the same, my daughter wants me to read the same book. She's three. She wants me to read the same book three times every night. I tell her she can pick out three books. She'll pick out three books, but want me to read each of them three times. Yeah. So we're working on her math skills a little bit there, but she's also a great negotiator and yeah. somebody who works in the literacy business. If you have a child who's begging you to read them a book again, how can you deny it? That's right. And hey, repetition, that's not a bad thing too. So very good. So as so we motivation is definitely a concern. Let's talk about some of the ways that reading is fundamental is addressing some of these issues around motivation, around teaching effectively, and other things that you can pull in. What are some of the things that you all are focusing on that are really making it possible for us to deal with the literacy crisis that exists right now? Number one, which is the heart and soul of reading is fundamental, is giving children access to books, new books that they get to own, and most importantly, books that they get to choose. There is a direct link between choice and motivation. If you give children access to books and you give them choice in what they are going to read, they're going to be more motivated to read. And what we're trying to show now is that there's also a connection between motivation, being motivated to read it, and comprehension, how well you understand what you're reading, the meaning that you make while you're reading. So that's where I would say 
riff does the best work is around just getting kids access to books. It's amazing that, you know, there's children out there where there there's, excuse me, I'll rephrase that. There are communities out there where there's only one book per every 300 children in that community. That sounds like a tragedy. Goodness gracious. Yes. Yeah. That is sobering. <laughs> like I, my kids always have access to books from the library books. We buy them books that are just kicking around. My wife and I are both big readers and to think one book for 300 kids. It's just, that's a mind blowing stat, Aaron. Yeah. And even we're located in Washington, DC, just right across the river in the Anacostia neighborhood research came out in a, in 2019, I believe that in that community, there was about one book per every 830 children. So Hmm. 300 is even a conservative number in some areas. Hmm. Crazy. So let's talk a little bit about that aspect of the difference between reading books versus reading magazine, text on screens, et cetera. Where do you guys stand on that? Great question. We like to say that we are platform inclusive. While we originated with the print books, and if you remember what I like to call the OG riff, it was the bookmobile that was getting out into the communities and handing out books to kids. And we still very much do that. I'm a huge believer in a printed book. If you could see, I have a huge stack of them right right Mm -hmm. next to me that I'm working on crafting the support resources for our website. But we also are with the times. So we do offer digital books. We have a ebook platform called Skybrary that has some great features such as read aloud to me feature. That's particularly great for young children, maybe those pre-readers like preschool, kindergarten children. And this also helps with access. When you have, like you mentioned your Kindle, when you have a device that you can have an ebook on, you have better opportunities to have access to greater volume of books, have more choice in books. So we try to be platform inclusive of both print and digital. And then you mentioned magazines. To us, reading is reading. You could be reading a magazine, a cookbook with your family, a blog post. If you're getting joy from that experience, and if you're making meaning with the text, then that's reading. Yeah, I think that's really important too. So tell, talk to me about why it's so important for families to be involved in the reading process. I mean, kids go to school, can't they just learn all this at school and be done with it? So I think we've almost answered that just between our conversations about reading with our families and reading to our children. Your children look up to you. I was at a school that part of their mission statement was parents are the primary educators. And I don't even think I understood what that meant while I was working at that school, but it's something that I reflect back to very often now. What does it mean for parents to be the primary educators? Well, it's who your children mostly see when they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed at night. It's some parents and families are who children look up to. So if they see you reading If you create a culture of reading in your home and make it an enjoyable experience for your children, they will naturally become readers. I look at my daughter who's three, and as I mentioned, she'll ask me to read the same book three times to her before bed every night. Guess what she does after I close the door? 
she'll try to read the book to herself. Mm-hmm. Now, by convention, she's not quote unquote reading because she's not decoding the words on the page, but she is reading. She's taking that experience that her and I built together of the joy of sharing the book and she's replicating it on her own. And she's doing it because it was joyful for her. Yeah, that's really powerful. The thing that I often say about that is that you can't outteach the culture of the home. And so regardless of what it is that you are trying to teach the kids, if the culture of the home is the opposite of that, it, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. And uh, that aligns with the idea that parents are the primary educators because they really are. And too often schools get in this headbutt situation of we're the educators, we're the professionals, and you're just the parents. And that's not a healthy appropriate way to deal with that relationship. And if all schools understood that parents are the primary educators and we as the school step in to support and help them with that role of educating, I think it would take on a much different perspective of our education system would as a whole. Any other comments about that? You mentioned an interesting word. You said education system. And I took a course in undergrad called family systems. It's the first time I've ever heard of a family described as a system. And actually it was my favorite course that I took. But I think to your point, if we think of a family as a system and we already think of education as a system, these two systems need to work together. Yeah, they absolutely do. So give us some ideas of how to help them work together. One thing that we do at Reading is Fundamental, as I mentioned, we do teacher professional development. We have a whole series. We offer it both in person, but we have it as webinars too. And it's all about training teachers in family engagement best practices. And that series starts all the way from the basis of how do you define family? Why do we need to define family? Because some educators, they only have their own family experience. So they're going into a school with children, with many family, different families, different cultures represented, and they might not know how that child defines family. So we start very simple with how do you define family? How do you use family inclusive language and expansive thinking when it comes to families? And then we look at what are the barriers for families to get engaged in schools and even just defining family engagement. A lot of people, when you say family engagement, they're thinking actually only in one direction. They're thinking of the school sending information to the family. That's actually family involvement. Engagement is really, as we were just talking about, those two systems working together where families feel comfortable that they can come to the school when they need to. They can share their ideas with the school. They can share their hopes and dreams for their child at the school. And the school honors those components. So we have this these webinar series that's all about family engagement. We have a really lovely one called Storytelling as Culturally Responsive Family Practices. And that's all about different practices that teachers can use for allowing students to come into the classroom to share their stories. And storytelling, sometimes it's in oral tradition, sometimes it's written, but that's a literacy practice that all families have. Yeah, it's so funny when you bring up storytelling. I think about all the people online that I see that are saying, 
it's all about the story. You know, if you're trying to sell something, you got to tell the story around it and how these are things that like <clears throat> that we connect with them because that is how we have communicated and conveyed information for so long, whether that's directly through oral or through written word, those, the power of story really is, really is something powerful. So let's take an example here. You've got a school that's like, hey, our kids are just not reading enough. What are some strategies and tactics that you would suggest schools implement to to partner with families in helping kids see the joy of learning or of reading, not just learning, but of reading? <laughs> Something that we've been working on, particularly in partnership with different schools, is how schools can create family literacy events. Maybe it's a family literacy evening um, or it could be during the day. And that's another engagement tactic is offering things at multiple times so that families have opportunities to attend. But let's just say for these purposes, it's a family literacy evening. If we're talking about being culturally responsive and really having family engagement versus family involvement, you need to bring some families on board to actually plan the event. It requires more time and more effort, of course, but to do that, you're going to have buy-in from the families. And it might not mean every single family is coming and helping you plan. Maybe it's just a small group of families that are already invested in the school, already engaged, and you get them to help plan the event. Food is also a great way to get families to attend events because it takes one thing off of their plate as well. So you have an event in the evening and you're offering food at it. You, families are more likely to come because now they don't have to worry about, well, I'm going to go to this school event and then I'm going to have to go home and cook dinner. So you can invite that small group of families that I was just describing to bring in some food from their home culture, home tradition. It's a great way to get families to contribute, to design the events at, that are happening during the family literacy night. And then another important aspect that often gets overlooked is childcare for younger siblings. Remember, families are defined in lots of different ways. And a lot of families, it's not just the child that attends that school. They might have older siblings or younger siblings. So either having childcare available for them or having opportunities for the children, let's say it's an elementary school and they have younger siblings who are toddlers, ways for them to get engaged as well. Really, you know, between the food, the activities, and having some family input in the design of the event, you're creating an opportunity to really engage families, to make them want to attend. And while they're there, at least in our books, our events, rather, we give out books. But that's a great way where you can put out your, here are some tip sheets for reading to your kids at home. And, you know, just creating this culture of literacy by valuing what families are already doing in their homes, they're honoring their literacy practices, and then showing them other ways that we practice literacy in school, kind of that meeting point, that bridge that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I like that. I think the other thing that we get caught up in is maximizing the number of people that attend these types of events. And one of the things that I've been saying is like, recognize that not everybody has to come to everything and be okay with that and find, you know, in this situation, you're talking about a a family literacy evening, not everybody has to come to that. And so like my family, us going to an event like that is not as beneficial as my neighbor who never reads to their kids and never talks about that. 
So my presence there is not as important as somebody else's. I'm really targeting and reaching out individually to invite specific people to come participate. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I would second. Outreach is important. I also came from a school where I taught in Washington, D.C. that had very high family engagement. And we, as a school policy, had an expectation that if a family didn't attend an event, the teacher or at least somebody on the staff reached out to them and asked them, why didn't you attend this event? So we could get some feedback on it. Maybe it's like what you said. They didn't think it was going to be beneficial to them. Or maybe it's the case where they come back and they say, you know, you always have your events on Thursday at six o'clock and I work during that time, so I can't come to those events. And that's given us feedback on we need to have our events at different times so that these families can attend. Another thing that we haven't mentioned yet is where do the events take place? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, school events take place at school. However, some families, either school's hard for them to get to or school can be a very intimidating place for them, particularly if they didn't have good experiences in school when they were growing up. So school is not a place that they want to be hanging out on their free time. So is there another place, a place they already go in their community, such as a community center or a church where the teachers can can go to put on this event? It also shows educators, we're willing to go other places outside of the school. We're willing to meet you where you're at to put on this event. Yeah, I think that is exceptionally important, something that we as educators often overlook. School is not a welcoming place to everybody. As much as we want it to be and try to make it that way, that is not always the case. And so being able to think about ways you could make that work outside of your school, which could be something as simple as creating a book box in the community and then having it at the book box that's in the community. I mean, those are quite popular around where I live and there's all kinds of book boxes within walking distance of the school and something as simple as that, like, Hey, we're going to meet at the corner of X street and Y street. And there's a book box there. And we're going to talk about why reading is so important. And, you know, we're going to be there from two to five, come by anytime and different teachers are there at different times and checking in and, you know, just a drive by kind of a thing. Like this doesn't have to be like this big, huge production, come by, get an ice cream and a book. And that can be how simple it is. And we really just need to open our minds to the possibilities of what could be there. Anything you'd add to that, Aaron? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we saw those kind of events really take off during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I read through lots of stories of reading as fundamental coordinators explaining how they got books to children during the pandemic. And one of the stories that stuck out to me is they had their event in the McDonald's parking lot. McDonald's sponsored it. So there was food there. They had the books that Reading is Fundamental was giving out, but they also gave out other supplies that people needed, like diapers, other school supplies, clothing, household items. So really, this became a community event rather than a school event, and people could get what they needed all in one place. Mm -hmm. We need to think about the lessons that we learned, such as that from the pandemic, and how can we use those moving forward? Yeah, very good. Aaron, would you would you close us out by telling us how people can get involved with reading as fundamental and make it something that they're 
actively using and participating in? Sure. You can visit our website. It's riff.org. That's R-I-F.org. We have tons of everything you need from event in a box. If you're looking to put together your own event, we have the webinar series that I mentioned. If you're an educator that you want to learn more about family engagement tips, or we also have webinars on how to use literature in the classroom. We even have family facing webinars available in English and Spanish. If you're a family member and you would like to learn some literacy tips to use at home, of course, there's ways to donate on our website and also ways to sign up if you are a school that would like to have RIF come to your school. Yeah, very good. RIF.org, R-I-F.org. My last question that I ask is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you, Erin? Ooh, you're ending with a difficult one. Yes. I would say if you're a principal, empower your educators, listen to your families, and find a way to make connections between the two. And that's really how we are going to impact the children. I like it. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.